0: The Trials of Edmund Ludlow, Part 4 Now, while Ludlow decided to remove himself from Westminster, he moved down the Thames to Richmond, where he enjoyed the summer days walking in the Deer Park, grounds created a quarter of a century earlier by Charles I, the man that he had helped send to his death. While in Richmond, he heard of the frantic horse trading in Westminster, as the bill of indemnity at last neared its completion. Charles II's advisers were increasing the pressure on the commons to commit to punishing all the late king's judges. Ludlow heard that the Chancellor, Lord Clarendon, had offered that those named by the lords would only be punished if the later act of Parliament deemed it necessary. The Chancellor, meanwhile, insisted that any of Charles I's judges who had surrendered, then went back on their word, were not to be considered for clemency. Ludlow wrote, quote, "I took to be particularly levelled at me, having been informed that the sergeant's deputy, attended with soldiers, had very lately searched my house." End of quote. The commons buckled, agreeing to hand over to the lieutenant of the Tower of London all who had yielded in good house's sergeant at arms. From being men on bail, sure of their lives, the surrendered men now found themselves confined to the nation's most dreaded prison, from where traitors rarely emerged alive. Ludlow's failure to appear at this point meant he could now be added to the list of those who would answer for their crimes with their life. However, the authorities had no idea where he was. They decided to lure him in rather than frighten him off and claimed they would carefully examine the terms of his bail before acting against him. In the meantime, they said he would be best served by handing himself in. Elizabeth Ludlow revisited Grimston to gauge afresh what now was the best way ahead for her husband. The Speaker repeated his earlier advice that Ledlow must surrender. Mrs. Ledlow countered that she thought this a very dangerous course, giving the extent to which the Commons had already yielded to royal pressure. Surely yet more concessions were likely to follow, and she went on what was to stop the current House of Commons from being replaced by another whose members might vote through even stricter retribution against the Stuarts' historic foes. The speaker seemed much offended at this discourse, Ludlow wrote, and going down the stairs with her told her he would wash his hands of my blood by assuring her that if I would surrender myself, my life would be as safe as his own. But if I refused to hearken to his advice, and should happen to be seized, I was likely to be the first man they would execute." and she to be left the poorest widow in England. But the advice Ledlow was receiving from other more trusted parts of the enemy camp was consistent. His life was in peril. After weeks of uncertainty, he knew it was time to escape. Ledlow sent a letter explaining his decision to Speaker Grimston, and told him that he had withdrawn himself, not out of distaste to the House of Commons, upon whose words he had rendered himself, reported Sir Thomas Gower, a royalist who had raised a regiment for Charles I during the Civil War, but that he saw blood was thirsted for by those who hardly ever had attempted to draw any in any either sort, and they attempted to invade the liberties of the commons of England, of which they hoped they would be careful, that whenever the House of Commons signified their pleasure, and that would maintain what they had promised, upon notice left at a place he named, he would readily return to the place from which he'd left. Ludlow let his family and closest friends know his decision and told them he would be using his mother's maiden name as an alias. When they heard from him next it would be as Edmund Phillips. Wearing a new beard as a disguise he said his goodbyes unaware of when or if he would see them again. With evening descending he was by, taken by a coach through James's field and into the city passing over London Bridge. At St. George's Church, Southwark, he was met by a guide leading a spare horse. The two men then headed south towards the coast, traveling by lesser roads, avoiding towns, and steering clear of places where soldiers might be. The military would be looking out for fleeing regicides, and many of them would know the distinguished lieutenant general by sight. The fugitive and his guide rode through the night, safely reaching the Sussex town of Lewes by daybreak. There Ludlow boarded a a shallop, a small covered boat, but the sea swell forced a switch to another craft until conditions improved. The second vessel had a recent history that must have encouraged Ludlow, for he learnt that it had already been successfully spirited away another leading parliamentarian, Oliver Cromwell's heir, Richard. The squall was so strong that it made this new vessel run aground in the sand. It was now that the Royalist search party appeared. They inspected the covered boat but decided against approaching the one beached in the sandbank, feeling sure that a boat in such a condition must be empty. After a day and a night waiting after the storm passed, Ludlow was able to slip out of the English waters towards the French ports of Dineppe. The crew was evidently unaware of his identity, of its fine-looking passenger. Ludlow described in his memoirs a conversation he had with the ship's master, who had worked out of Irish ports during the years of Ludlow's military command there. The master asked the bearded traveler of news from London. Did he happen to know if General Ludlow was one of the judges taken prisoners recently? Ludlow coolly replied that he had not heard of any such thing. At Dineppe, Ludlow went to the home of Madame Co a sympathizer who welcomed him with the choice of staying with her in town or moving to her house in the country. Worried that one of the many Irishmen he had seen in the port might recognize him, Ludlow opted to move inland. He was keen to get some country air and even keener to avoid the fate of Isaac Dorislaw. After a few days in this new hideout, Madame de Coe forwarded to Ludlow letters received from England. One of these contained a written proclamation from Whitehall dated September the 1st, 1660, which recalled the Regicide's obligation to surrender during the two-week window in June earlier that year, and whereas Edmund Ludlow Esquire, being one of the persons therein named, did not render himself, it announced, nevertheless, hath since escaped from out of custody of the sergeant-at-arms, attending to the House of Common, and is fled or doth obscure himself to evade the justice of legal trial. The decree warned that nobody must assist Ludlow in any way, rather they were to apprehend him. The reward for success in this was a tempting generous 300 pounds, the equivalent of almost 20 years wages for the average farm laborer. So we've gotten Ludlow out of the country. Now we'll have to check on him here in the, in the situation that's going on and then we will see what happens to those who turn themselves in. Now the sources for this Killers of the King The Men Who Dared Execute Charles I by Spencer The History of England by Thornton Lockyer and Smith The English Civil Wars 1640-1660 to 1660, by Warden So I hope you enjoyed that and as always don't forget to come by the website sumahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com And ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.